3: Hello and welcome to Why Would You Tell Me That? A podcast where we explore stories that you probably don't know, but you really should. I'm Dave Moore, he's Neil Delamere, and this is us having a chat. Uh, We should tell you that you can follow us if you like, just around the place, uh, or also on social media. Um, I'm at Dave Today (laughs) FM, he's at Neil Delamere Comedy. The show is at Why Would You Tell Me That? And if at any point you come across a story, a fact, even a question, and you go... I wonder would this be an episode, or is this true, or can the lads have a look at, get in touch, slide into our DMs, they're always open, 24-7, <laughs> and ask us anything, or tell us what we should be covering, because we love, we've had so many episodes come from you guys suggesting things, so keep it going, uh, get in there in the DMs, and let us know what you want us to cover, and uh, we should also say we're proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network, they are class lads.
4: I'm so glad that people can't see how your eyebrows raised when you said the phrase "slide into our DMs"? It was <laughs> it was equal parts Roger Moore in the Saint and just a terrifying, creepy uncle at a wedding. To be honest with you, a, a
3: little bit of carry on,
4: yeah, carry on podcast. If, if Roger Moore was standing handing you cocktail sausage at one o'clock in the morning at a wedding in Harry's of Kinigad, <laughs> that is roughly the look that you accomplished there.
3: Oh, uh, you love this.
4: I do love, it, yeah. I mean, I'm aroused and intrigued in equal measure. Uh, I have a cracker of an episode for you today, okay. David. Uh, in part two, we're going to talk to a research, an associate research scientist with the National Park Service research program in Yellowstone, Kira okay. Cassidy, and she's going to explain that that idea, the alpha wolf, that's used to justify all sorts of human behaviour, this you know top dog, I'm the alpha wolf stuff, nonsense. That's all nonsense. And she's nonsense. she's coming at this from actual wolves. Uh, yeah, she actually works with wolves. She researches wolves and spends her time in Yellowstone National Park studying wolves. Okay, and come on. is an expert in her field.
3: No offence to whatever you have lined up in part one, but mm-hmm. let's get to part two. <laughs> no, <I'm joking>. <laughs> <laughs>
4: okay, well, I'll take a slight detour before we get to part two. Okay. Um, Part one, we have been remiss in not going back to the people that we asked to leave us reviews. And I think it's time oh, we do that. Oh, So if you, if you haven't listened to this in a while, we did ask people some time ago to review the show. Uh, but you said you don't even have to review the show. And then See, it got into...
3: This is apparently the algorithm thing. That, just like, give us five stars. If you give us five stars, you can then... Because Apple don't look at the five star or don't look yeah. at the whatever you write. They just go, oh, five yeah. stars and a review. That gets two ticks or whatever. So you can write anything in the review. And we asked you to, at the start, yes, review other podcasts, I think is what we said to be.
4: Yeah, it is slightly branched out away from that because <laughs> I think you might or I might, I think it might have been you who said review anything in the world. Right? Wait,
3: that's what that was me, yes.
4: I think that might have been you, yeah. Um, I think if, if we could get more than five stars, they probably would have done that. Like the <laughs> European flag, 12 stars. Um, so this is a collection of yeah, yeah. Uh, five stars. Great finish. Mix well before use. Apply liberally. Touch dry in one hour. <laughs> Apply second coat after four hours. Thanks, Shane Mac. Right? Amazing. I really like that. Uh five stars. Cloud9 carpet underlay is most definitely the superior <laughs> carpet underlay. Five stars. This is on our podcast feed. Oh, do,
3: you, do you know what's actually so frustrating? Is some poor, poor person's going to go on and go, I heard Neil has a podcast. I heard Dave has a podcast. I heard Neil and Dave have a podcast. I'll just go check out the reviews.
4: <laughs> First reviews about <laughs> Cloud9 Underlay. Yeah. My favourite <laughs> cheese is Wensleydale <laughs> with cranberries. Just lovely at any time of the day. Five stars. <laughs> uh, expro hound. I, I like those kind of general ones. I I prefer more specific ones. Oh wow! Okay. Wonderful. Five stars. The Black Sheep in Port Moody, BC, has always been my favorite place to buy yarn. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Oh, the British Columbians are getting. Yeah, them. that's <laughs> wooly Oh mammals. yes. Oh oh, it, there's more. Oh, I... Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I love this one. Bert Lancaster, Peter Capaldi, and <laughs> Peter uh, Riger. Star in this classic tale of an American oil giant trying to buy a Scottish fishing village in a a beautiful fable of the corrupting lure of wealth. Local hero, as long with a favourite movie of mine, charming, witty, but thought-provoking, and a masterpiece and critique of its time. Five stars.
3: I did not know that Peter Capaldi and Bert Lancaster were in a movie together at the same time. This is amazing.
4: (laughs) Oh, yeah. This podcast is pretty good, too, I guess. (laughs) We'll end with Atomic Fez. Okay. Do you have an neglected electric bass guitar in a closet to hide your shame? Whenever I fool around with my six string electric guitar, it always settles into me playing rhythm bass patterns, which sounds like a bass player, doesn't it? So I'm thinking I'm a bassist, but (laughs) I need to locate a bass to find out any bass, any condition. The cheaper, more thrashed, the better preference given to left handed models, although I could also string a right one backwards so that's not too much of a requirement I'm located in the Vancouver BC area of Canada oh no, another BC now that I have your attention absolute top level silly and informative crack from two brilliant people telling you things you didn't previously know you need to be aware of oh, warning man. show contains frequent mention of badgers
0: <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> that's true sometimes
4: so keep doing this oh
3: I'm God, loving please. this yeah review more random things and no explanation just just five stars a nice adjective like fascinating, wonderful, great, lovely, yeah. and then review absolutely anything. And we'll forget about it for a few episodes and we'll come back and to we'll it. And we'll do again. it again. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, oh, that's, I'm so happy with that.
4: Let's move on to part one. Okay. Um, I was thinking about wolves and dogs, and um, I have a related story, shall we say. Let okay. me take you back to the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal of 1849, because yeah. I research for this yeah. show. He's taking me back
3: there where I've definitely never been before.
4: Uh, This is from an article by Dr. Shipman. Yes. (laughs) I hope not. Dr. Shipman. And yes, don't worry. They all uh, survive. Uh, A.B. Shipman of Syracuse, New York, the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal. A few months ago, I was called in at great haste to a young gentleman who was in a most ludicrous yet painful condition, Dave. Okay. Right. I found on examination a bottle holding about a pint with a short neck and small mouth firmly attached to his body by the penis. Oh, which was drawn through the neck and projected into the bottle being swollen in purple.
3: Oh, I'm making involuntary noises now.
4: Yeah, this gets better. The bottle, which was a white one, I don't know if you necessarily need (laughs) that detail in that, to be honest, had an opening of three-fourths of an inch uh, in diameter only, and the penis, being much swollen, rendered its extraction utterly impossible. The patient was greatly frightened. I think you would be. I'd imagine you would be.
3: If my member... Was yes. stuck inside a glass milk bottle or whatever the hell it was. Mm. Greatly frightened is the <laughs> understatement of the year.
4: I think you'd actually have an out of body experience. You'd be like, "Don't frighten it, doctor. Like it's, a, <laughs> it's it's hiding away itself. Out of body. You want it out of the <laughs> bottle. Is what you want." Uh, so he goes, um, "And so urgent for its removal that he would give me no account of its getting into its present novel situation." but implored me to liberate it instantly. What a lovely Victorian. He implored me to get the fucking thing out of the box. Get it off me, slum. As the pain was intense and the mental anguish and fright intolerable. Seeing no hopes of getting an explanation in his present predicament and after endeavouring to pull the penis out with my fingers without success, <laughs> I seized a large knife lying on the table. At which point I mean, you, you are... Imagining a life with the bottle at yeah. the end of your flute. You're just Knife like, is it.
3: not the tool with which we want to attack this situation.
4: Exactly. So he sees this is the large knife. And with the back of it, phew.
3: Oh, okay.
4: Struck a blow onto the neck of the bottle, shivering it to atoms and liberating the penis in an instant. <laughs> liberating it. Like... <laughs> Like you're rolling down the streets of Paris in a tank as a GI with random French ladies kissing you on the cheek and putting flowers into it. I'd say there may have been a few penises in bottles in those days. So hang on. He smashed
3: it at the neck. Like he didn't even smash it way away from. No. He was right down at the neck. Yeah. Did, did it not shatter and cause irreparable
4: damage? No, no, no. Um, uh, It was enormously swollen and black. And um, as if scalding water or fire had been applied to them, he complained of smarting and pain in the penis after the bottle was removed and inflammation, yeah, think. <laughs> swelling and discoloration, blah, 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 blah. Right. So the reader is probably anxious to know by this time how, and this is, how, you, and I quote, how a penis belonging to a live man found its way <laughs> into so unusual a place as the mouth of a bottle. As if...
3: Because if it was a dead man, we'd all be like, that's fine.
4: Who hasn't decorated a corpse in, a, in an interesting way. Listen, I think fairy lights isn't enough for Christmas this year. Why don't we dig up granddad, drink that bottle, and just see where the ideas take us. So, and this is why it gets, this. Is, this is, I love this. It's just so weird. So, I was extremely curious myself, but the fright and perturbation of the patient's mind and his apprehensions of losing his penis entirely either by the burn swelling inflammation or by my cutting it off to get it out of the bottle all came upon him at once and overwhelmed him with fear so we didn't get any explanation what had oh. happened was a bottle in which some potassium had been kept in naphtha and which had been used up in experiments was standing in his room and wishing to urinate without Whoa. leaving his room he pulled out the glass stopper and applied his lad to the to the mouth, food. okay, the mouth. yeah Okay, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, yeah? yeah First jet of urine was followed by an explosive sound <gasps> And flash of fire And quick as thought, the penis was drawn into the bottle with a force So a chemical reaction
3: probably blew the air out and sucked the, the top down And the top just happened to be a penis attached to a man and not a piece of cork
4: Yet the penis was drawn into the bottle with a force and tenacity which held it as firmly as if in a vice. Oh. And you got it absolutely right. The burning of the potassium created a vacuum instantaneously and the soft feeling tissue eventually excluded the air. The bottle acted like a huge cupping glass to this oh. novel portion of the system. And it just oh. went <sighs> straight in.
3: And it was not coming off for love nor money.
4: Yeah.
3: Oh, good God almighty. I don't know if I can go on now, to be
4: honest with you, Neil. Well, you can't just don't pee in a bottle that had potassium in it. Well, I mean,
3: that's all well and good now, but someone has to do it first to find out.
4: Well, you know, there's a, there's a teenage boy listening to this book trying to figure out the level of potassium <laughs> that would in, engender some degree of sucking, but not enough <laughs> that you go entirely into the bottle. <laughs> so your man is a doctor and he's obviously, you know, interested in this. So I was anxious to test the matter. Hang on. Who was anxious? The, the doctor. The doctor who wrote the paper was anxious to test yeah, it. Though not with the same instruments, which the patient had done. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, lo- I like the fact that he's taken a Mickey. I was going to say, himself. And, and with, and um, for that purpose, took a few small particles of potassium, mixed it with about a teaspoonful of naphtha and placed it in a pint bottle. Then I introduced some urine with a dash with the end of one of my fingers. Uh, and that was inserted into the mouth of the bottle, not so tightly as to completely close it, and the result was a loud explosion. And the finger was drawn forcibly into the bottle and held there strongly. I'm just
3: going back to the guy who presented with this, not not Doctor Shipman. Yeah. Who, in fairness, had the foresight uh, or and hindsight, <laughs> H- hindsight to not use his foreskin, <laughs> hindsight to use his finger. Like, you must be bursting, right? Yeah. Because. If, if you're in a situation where you're deciding to urinate into effectively a beaker, w- whether you know or do not know whatever's in it, even if you did potassium and naphtha, you're still like, eh, I've, I've so got to go. Yeah. You would be absolutely bursting to be in that situation. And there's a relief we all know yeah. from urination. Yeah. That, let's be honest with you, there's little in life can compare Very to the relief uh, of, 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 of emptying em- your blood. Yeah. So this fella, would presumably have gone. Oh God, I have to. Uh, okay, I'm just uh, that sigh, those little pea shivers that go through your body as you begin to yeah. alleviate the the built up of build up of kind of pressure that exists, followed by an explosion and an almighty sucking on his member in a bottle, like oh my god the panic
4: yeah yeah it's probably like it's the middle of the night it's dark oh. he may just know where the bottle is he, he probably hasn't lit a candle you know it's oh, 1849 Jesus. he gets up that moment of ah oh, relief is followed by an explosion in the groin area and then he looks down what did he think like what did he think had happened you would presumably think there's some specter inside the bottle he, he's been haunted by the ghost of the fellow who set up water for crystal <laughs> thought <laughs> no what a weird accent. oh I feel and the re- so sorry for him. the reason I thought of this is because of course wolves and dogs get caught up when they are in flagrante delicta or delicto <laughs> what that that?
3: I'll be honest with you I'm struggling to see the link here between the connection and wolves yeah
4: when, when dogs and wolves mate they get caught up for a long time afterwards you know oh Do you know I,
3: I haven't spent enough time researching the uh, mating habits of Canines are watching Yeah,
4: Yeah Yeah, they get stuck They get stuck for a good period afterwards It can be 30 or 40 minutes a lot of the time Ah you're joking Yeah no I'm not joking you Because of the shape of the things involved Your missus
3: to be kicking you and digging you Get off me, get out
4: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much yeah Oh
3: Um, Neil Delamere I don't know whether to thank you Or decide that this is the end of the podcast After that story
4: Oh well I've got something that's a little bit less um, Oh I hope so it's not, it's, it's still a bit gank, but uh, it's kind of interesting. Right. So moving on, obviously the scientists, uh, the catch and the track wolves is part of their research. But uh, have you ever been paid to catch flies, David?
3: <laughs> no, I didn't realise there was an, it was an income stream I hadn't explored
4: there. Well, listen, you know. I'm a
3: man for a side hustle, <laughs> I'll tell you that much.
4: NFTs is now, the F is the fly. Uh, right. If you lived in Dublin 100 years ago, Yeah. A little bit over 100 years ago, you may well have been paid to catch flies. A doctor in Dublin, in the early 1900s, paid kids to catch flies.
3: Was he experimenting on the flies?
4: No, no. And There exists a 1911 annual report... Uh, from Dublin's long-serving medical officer of health Sir Charles Cameron it's in the National Library He was a decent fellow, this dude He had okay. a lot of um, empathy For the people who lived in tenements And uh, there was 23,000 people Living in one-room uh, tenements uh, With no running water Cooking on an open fire Sorry,
3: one-room tenements Not yeah. in one room Yes, I get you yeah, Yes, yeah, there weren't yeah.
4: 23,000 people in one room Yeah,
3: Because that is what landlords on daft.ie actually pleasure themselves to.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's either that or the weirdest squid game episode ever. They started with 23,000 people in one room and then landlords <laughs> choose who gets to win the four million quid. Um, no, it's 23,000 families. Like, so gotcha, it's in
3: one room tenements. Yes, I horrible understand.
4: Horrible conditions, right? Yeah, terrible. And he reported in the heatwave in the late, late summer of 1911 that infant mortality from diarrhoea rose as it usually did in heat waves, because there's obviously no re-pasteurization and no refrigeration and all the rest. So they were, yeah. re- were very high. And he, and they were very high in Europe as well, right? Um, so he offered a bounty for collecting paper bags of flies.
3: I do it for a Twix. I wouldn't do it for a bounty.
4: Way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, get out!
3: See, Neil Delmer is a real comedian. So when he throw one of those at him, he's just he cringes no, inside. No, no, his I, penis uh... just enters a bottle and it explodes. <laughs> so you throw one of it, do
4: you think Sting? That was a lyric that Sting was considering. <laughs> was penis, penis in clear. a bottle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, no, no. It's, <laughs> Copeland is like, it's not right, Sting. It's not right. That's, it's it's something like that. wasn't this. <laughs> Member in a bottle. No, no, no. Member in a bottle is close though. Uh, <laughs> massage <in. laughs> No, no, no. Have so, a think about it. Come back to night
3: Okay, so come on here. Um so he he, he said about it, okay for so the kids went and so the the idea of catching the flies was to prevent the spread of disease.
4: Yeah. He persuaded the Public Health Committee to issue 100 brown paper bags and offer three pence for returning them to the uh, disinfecting depot that they had put down Can, can I ask
3: what, what would have been the method of I mean fly catching is like, it's something that we all struggle with Just the people old, who have those like nowadays you have the zapper kind of mm, tennis racket things yeah. that like zap them you have those when I used to work in the petrol station we had those things the big blue lights that they'd fly into and get zapped you have the sticky yeah, kind of look like film, old film, camera, film reels that hang everything, and their flies get stuck. Like, no, this, this, these are all modern inventions.
4: How were the kids catching flies? Well, kids didn't have any of those back in those days, so they all trained frogs. <laughs> all of them. A lot of geckos around Gardner yeah. Street in those Loads, days. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And how did they convince the geckos and frogs not to actually eat the flies, but to get them in their on their tongues and then spit them into a brown bag?
4: They put a little stopper at the back of the tongue, so the tongue could come out, but the tongue couldn't go all the way back in. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, it gives a go, yeah, a scraper. This and was, they, and was, they'd scrape a, the flies off the was a good end. good scientific episode tongue. up until now. No, okay. They They just caught them. Right. I don't know how they caught them. Interestingly enough, um, James Larkin took the piss out of them for that and actually slagged them off in the Irish worker by suggesting what? that he, he pinned the little bags to clotheslines and trained the flies to jump into them. jump in. So he actually took the mickey out of them there. But Unbelievable. They collected loads of them because he thought that this is a, this is a source of contagion. Um, 21 bags were returned with 6,000 flies in each. Oh my God. flies were caught. Oh and he actually gosh. went and he discovered that the average weight of each fly was 0. 0.7 grams.
3: This is fascinating.
4: So later he considered that he possibly made two mistakes. The bags were too big. You know, 6,000 right. flies is quite yeah, a lot to get into. the that's a lot. Because uh, he found a few partly filled bags in the tenements. Right. And he advised reducing the size in 1912. You know, maybe about 3,000 flies. That seems to be... I mean, you're just setting up a fly-based kind of model. You, 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 you're, uh, you're... Hang on a
3: second. Hang on a second. Six sevens or 40... Is thats that, is that 4.2 kilos of flies per bag? It is. 126,000 flies. No, no, go back to the 6,000 in a bag. Each one weighs 0. 0.7 grams. Yeah. So four kilos of fo- of flies. Oh, my God. Is that right? So, that so is 10,
4: right. 10 pounds of flies. Yeah. Oh my god, it's like a selection box for a toad. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, however, 1912 proved to be a cooler summer with fewer flies, and you know, they had a much diminished incidence return, of, okay. Uh, infant mortality, though, because oh, that's because, yes, and so no bags were turned in that year, right? But oh my god, we were at the time of them discovering, you know, and I say at the time, roughly speaking, the kind of 20 years before 20 years after around that period is when. Bacteriologists are figuring These things out They're looking at uh, uh, Germ theory And uh, he's Obviously Very interested In the uh, The health of the people In the tenements Had a huge amount of empathy For them And tried to make it a lot better And thought Is this worth trying?
3: Unreal Absolutely unreal I'm just Still picturing a four kilo Bag of flies It's so <laughs> gross Not as gross as getting Your mickey stuck In a In a pipette But anyway
4: Oh wow You could have You could have really bragged About your, your Manhood there <laughs> but Pipette I mean I think everybody's disappointed okay cylinder jar cylinder no, jar okay no, bye no no, no 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 Pipette that's all we'll ever heard. in fact <laughs> it's very rare to actually see a nickname being born live <laughs> but old Pipette Moore will join me in the second half as we talk to the <laughs> research scientist Kira Cassidy about wolves their families the structures in which they live and it is brilliant and she's brilliant join us in part two Welcome to part two of why would you tell me that now on the line is an associate research scientist with a National Park Service research program in the most famous of all the national parks in the US, Yellowstone, but also a woman who wrote one of the best emails I've ever gotten to chat. Uh, Dave, I didn't share this with you, but basically I got an email saying, can I change the time because I have to go up to the back country to deal with some problem bears? I was like, yes, yes. Yes, you can. Take those picnic baskets away from those bears and sort them out. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, from Yellowstone, Kira Cassidy. Hi, Kara.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
4: Were the bears okay in the end?
2: Yeah, so they there were a couple of bears getting into garbage in a couple of different places in the park, and I work closely with the bear management team, even though mostly I focus on wolves and um we had a few people who needed to be kind of on call to deal with those bears, and there was this trip set up to pick up a different camera or a, a collar that had fallen off of a bear, and so I was helping with the collar pickup, so they didn't have to totally uh, change all their plans. So
3: that email you sent Neil was was pretty cool. <laughs> the sentence you just said there, which is. I went up to help out with the bears. Usually I help out with the wolves. Like, what is happening? This is the greatest conversation already.
4: If someone has has found this podcast through the internet, can we say we are actually talking about animals? If you were looking for classifications of gay men, this is not the podcast episode for you. We will cover that in future episodes. We're oh, not ruining anything. Out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I told Dave in part one that we're going to counter the myth of the alpha wolf. This idea that the, the strongest wolf in the pack of wolves becomes the dominant one and he's very aggressive. And I kind of think it's an idea that's used to justify all sorts of nonsense in human groups. But we, we will get there. But let's talk about Yellowstone first. So how many packs of wolves are actually in Yellowstone?
2: There are about 10 packs right now. And we are trying to get our, we usually do a couple of different official counts at different times of the year. So the end of the calendar year in the spring, which is the wolf biological year, it's right before they have pups. So it's kind of, it's the low point in their population. And then after they have pups, you know, it, they all have their litters within about three weeks of each other. And so that population will go up. So far, we have counted 43 pups out of those 10 packs. And we think there there are somewhere around 80 to 90 adults. And so right now, we're still trying to find some of those packs. They can be tough to find in the fall and the, the late summer because they're a little bit more spread out. They're harder to see in the tall grass. Um, but once winter starts, that's where our big field work comes in.
3: Sorry, I I know I shouldn't be disrupting and derailing this conversation already, but like when you said see them in the tall grass, I'm really scared because I thought you would have some kind of fly a drone or they all have collars or something. Are you literally looking for wolves? Are you crazy?
2: (laughs) Probably, yes. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) most of what I do is fly in this uh, single seat little Piper Super Cub airplane. So the pilot's right in front of me and there are a handful of radio collars on each pack. We will track those radio collars, look for the wolves. But even from the air, they can be tough to see in certain places, tall grass or being in treed areas. Once we start getting a little bit more snow, that just becomes easier. But there are places in Yellowstone where people can see wolves fairly easily. Um, you know, if you wow. come to Yellowstone and you have about a week or so and your whole goal is to see a wolf, there are a handful of places that they're pretty reliable sightings, you know, as much as four or five times uh, a week.
3: Wow.
4: You just have to get Costner out of the way. C- Costner, get out. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you've had your time. And I didn't realize you said that there, there's 43 pups, uh, they're, that they're born kind of April, May time. The first counterintuitive fact I found out when I was doing the research for this, Dave, is wolves prefer a hard winter. Yeah, I would have thought, no, it's hard, but no, it's actually better for wolves if it's a really cold winter with loads of snow. Isn't that right, Kira?
2: That's right. Exactly. So this last winter was one of the more severe winters that we've had in decades, from what I heard from people who've lived here for their entire lives. And the wolves were really happy. The deep snow and a number of different cold snaps makes it really hard for the elk and the bison and the deer. And They just become kind of weaker and weaker as the winter goes on. They become easier for the wolves to kill. But also, especially last winter, we actually had quite a lot of animals starving to death or just dying from malnutrition because that winter was going on for so long. And when they just die naturally, the wolves can take advantage of that. And they actually have scavenged quite a lot by the end of the winter.
4: So let's talk about uh, the packs, right? Uh, Where does this idea of the alpha wolf come from? And and why are we trying to move away from it now?
2: The idea of an alpha wolf came about in the very earliest studies on wolves. And most of those were actually done on captive wolves in the early 1900s. Wolves were killed out throughout uh, most of the lower 48 states and so there weren't people seeing them out in the wild very often at all, and so most of what they were seeing were just these wolves that were in captivity, and they were put into these groups. No one really knew how wolf packs formed. Maybe it's just a group of wolves that find each other and decide to cooperate, try to hunt together, try to feed together, and what they were seeing in those captive groups was that there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of kind of dominance and submission. There was a very strict hierarchy. And once wolves started to recover a bit, and um, they were being studied in places like northern Minnesota by Dave Meach, starting in the 50s, and then a couple decades later in Yellowstone, and in other places like Denali National Park, where they were never extirpated, they have always lived there. People started to recognize that a pack in the wild was not showing those really aggressive kind of behaviors, especially around food. You know, there wasn't the, this fighting, there wasn't like the dominance and there wasn't really this hierarchy. And um, the more that we learned about it. And then with the discovery of DNA, we can kind of look to see how the animals are related to each other in a wild wolf pack. And as it turns out, they're usually just a family and the parents, you know, a mother and a father, sometimes an aunt or an uncle are in there too, but their offspring over the course of a couple of years, so siblings uh, that are of different ages, and all of a sudden that's a pack. And we're, we weren't really seeing, and biologists weren't seeing those aggressive fights or that strict hierarchy and that tension between them. They were seeing a lot more kind of like peaceful behaviors and playing and sharing and cooperating. And I think it's the biggest difference is that this is what's happening in the wild as opposed to something that humans kind of set up in captivity. And then also just learning more and more about them.
4: It's not a prison gang. It's a family, basically. That's, <laughs> that's what it is. If we trace the, the uh, origin of this, there's a famous study, Dave, called the Schenkel Study. Mm. And uh, it was in 1934. And it looked at wolves in Basel. In the zoological gardens, or Bal, if it, depending on what part of Switzerland you are, um, and the conditions were look up to ten wolves in a very small area, uh, ten by twenty meters. So that's why all this tension was 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 being created. And as you mentioned, Me uh, Meach is that he pronounced the, the name? Yeah, uh, Meach is a, a famous uh, researcher and, and a wolf researcher and scientist. Uh, he published the wolf, the ecology and behavior of the, of the endangered species, and he kind of. Uh, used the research based on captive wolves but he has since come out and said actually no we know way more about wolves now stop publishing my book if you don't mind wow and, uh, yeah yeah so he has completely changed the tune because he's a proper scientist and when we get yeah. information that has changed the paradigm he changes the paradigm and you're you were a, a master student of his right that's
2: right yeah i went to the university of minnesota to do my master's project i used data from here in Yellowstone. Um, but Dave was my master's advisor, which was a fantastic experience. He you know, has been at this point studying wolves for over 60 years and um, is still fascinated by them and loves to talk about behavioral ecology, which is what I'm most interested in. And yeah, it was, it was pretty fantastic and continues to be. I see him every once in a while at a wolf conference or out here in Yellowstone.
3: Wolf conference. (laughs) These are all so brilliant. Kira, can I ask you a question about about wolf packs then? And and, and I understand that would be obviously your area of expertise, but my poorly informed understanding of packs in general. So I'm thinking of, you know, African hunting dogs. I'm thinking of dogs in general. I'm thinking of dingoes. I'm thinking of maybe even hyenas, certainly lions, you know, cheetahs. You know, I know tigers are solitary, but I don't know. My understanding of these kind of predator packs or groups would be that there is a dominant, be it male or obviously in, in lions, maybe a dominant female or whatever. So A, correct me where I'm wrong there, but B, are wolves different to other predators or is this, am I misinformed and predators in packs are usually quite harmonious?
2: You know, that that term alpha, it just comes with that negative connotation, but there are leaders. And okay. that's the term that I've started to use a little bit more Um, leaders in the wolf pack. So usually a male and a female. Sometimes, you know, the lead male will die and the female will lead the pack for months or a year um, until she finds another partner. But other animals have slightly different kind of social structures. Um, I know that in lion prides, there isn't a particular lead female. They kind of are all similarly. Um, not There's not like a strict hierarchy. They're, they're usually related, first of all, so they know yeah. each other very well. And it's similar with wolves, but we do see a bit more um, of that hierarchy where there is a leader and they will be most likely to breed and have pups, but sometimes subordinate wolves breed and have pups as well, and then the whole pack will help raise them together.
4: I'm glad you mentioned that because that is the, I mean, if you, if you want a particular sentence to show the collegiate nature, the, the whole, it takes a village to raise a child thing, it really applies to wolves, Dave, right? This is going to blow your mind. When they're born in April, the whole pack brings back food, right? Hmm. But all of them have a spike in their prolactin hormone, which is the caregiving hormone when the pups are young, not just the parents of the pups. Wow.
2: Yeah, the yearlings. So, the ones that are just turning one year old who've never dealt with pups before, they will have a spike in prolactin. The big adult male wolves will have a spike in prolactin. It's pretty amazing how patient they are with the pups, too. <laughs> you know, pups have, if anyone who's had a puppy here knows, they have really sharp puppy teeth and they just <laughs> allow the pups to chew on them, to play with them. They will also bring them toys. Uh, we just put out a, a video. Of a trail camera a series of trail camera clips that we got of wolves bringing different things back to the pups as they're traveling along this little trail and it wasn't only food so sometimes they'll eat a bunch of food you can tell they're really full and they'll come back to the den and regurgitate for the pups but other times if they don't have food to bring back that instinct to bring something to the pups is so strong that they'll kind of grab anything they'll grab antlers (laughs) or bones we've had wolves grabbing just a branch with a bunch of needles on it. Uh, We've also had them grab funny things like a traffic cone <laughs> to
4: the I think it-
3: they put it on their heads and they <laughs> yes. go, look
4: at me. Are you sure there's no pissed students in the middle of Yellowstone Park? <laughs> I mean, I think that's a charming little uh, little vignette you've painted there. But if, if you saw an, in, in amongst all the bones and the little branches, just one single red riding hood, that's terrifying at that point. <laughs> that is a different level of scary. So, so it's this big family group that actually in building to that is the, the ability or instinct to look after each other. But some family members seem to be even more important than others. There's, there's this amazing stat in one of your talks. If one wolf pack, right, the Jets, Dave, yeah. they go up against the other wolf pack. What were the other ones called in West Side Story? And the Sharks. The Sharks, okay. Jets and Sharks, two wolf packs, go up against each other. Yeah. If they're roughly evenly matched, and here is a stat for you, there is one remaining variable that has a huge impact. And it's not weaponry. It's something else. What is Akira?
2: It's age. I was very surprised to find this. I tested for all different types of pack compositions that would make a pack more likely to win in the fights, even if they're outnumbered. And I tested for all kinds of things. If they had prime-aged wolves, if they had a home-field advantage, if they had a carcass, if they had pups present. And it turned out that the pack that was most likely to win was that one that had an elderly wolf, one of those elders that had a ton of experience. I didn't quite believe it at first. And so I dug into the literature and it, it seemed to match up really well with some of these other really cool studies showing that in a social animal that lives in a group and has a leader that if that leader has a lot of experience, the whole group does better. So things like elephants, if they have a matriarch who's more than 30 years old, maybe she's as much as 60 years old, the whole group has higher survival In an orca, if they have a grandmother present, the whole pod does better, especially during a really stressful thing like a salmon shortage. And for the wolves, this is the same thing. When they're fighting, this is the most chaotic and stressful thing that a wolf can deal with in their life. And so it accounts for half of their mortality. And so packs that can get it right and do it really well end up doing much, much better. And the ones that do it well, even if they're in a smaller pack and outnumbered are the ones with the experienced elder
3: and does gender matter in that situation because you mentioned say the matriarch of the elephant the grandmother of the orca is it the elder female or can it be either gender
2: for this analysis i put both of them together and i think someday we'll be able to see enough of those fights that we can piece them out and see if there's a difference between males and females but for right now they were lumped together um and so it's just age right now, as opposed to split.
3: I think here we 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 all know where this is going. It's definitely the presence of the elder, <laughs> experienced, smart female who's going to make all the difference. Let's be
4: honest. It's a it, it don't don't mess with granny. Basically, yeah, you're yeah. you're two and a half times more likely to win if you have uh, two and a half times two and a half times more likely.
3: So it's not like a tiny little percentage.
4: No, it seems to be the like the the institutional knowledge is held by the. Uh, older matriarch essentially
2: yeah it does seem to be so the the pack territory is passed down through the female line from either mother to daughter or older sister to younger sister and so they may have a better idea about where they can go in their territory to take advantage of some kind of landscape feature to win over another pack or to know where to cross the river to escape or something They might also, those elders, (laughs) they know not to panic. When the initial Mm -hmm. two packs run into each other, it is extremely chaotic for about 30 to 90 seconds or so. And I've seen a number of those fights and it's chaotic for me. I just end up in my recorder saying, there's a gray chasing a gray and a black wolf chasing two gray wolves. This one turns around and sometimes they chase a pack mate and then they realize and recognize each other and they'll get together and then chase another one. And so... Those initial chaotic moments, we can look back and we've seen enough of the fights between the packs to say that elder is not panicking. They're not running away. They are kind of standing and gathering their pack mates together. And as long as they can get just a handful of pack mates to follow them, to not panic themselves, to go get through that chaotic minute or so, and then they can start chasing their opponent and prevent them from regrouping together and just drive them out of the area. That's what made them win. Just winning on any one particular day might not be that big of a deal, but if you can do that day after day, you know, week after week, especially in the winter when packs are traveling all together, running into each other, patrolling their boundaries, if they can do that over and over and prevent their own pack mates from being killed during those fights, they will end up doing much better. They can have higher quality territory, They can have better protected pups the next spring. They can have better resources, so better access to things like elk herds and bison herds. And overall, they're just gonna have higher survival. And it ends up kind of all coming down to that elder guiding them through that really stressful experience.
4: There's this amazing video that, like, you know, the wolves are exceptionally clever. They've they've found parts of uh, of Yellowstone which are obviously naturally heated by springs, Dave. So if you go into the shelter, there's just this this wolf has popped out, but he, he's like he's in a robe and he's, he's he's got cucumbers on his eyes because he's found this amazing place. He's ignoring Liam Neeson who's fermenting rebellion in another part of the park, right? But then. The, on the other side of that, the prey is really clever as well. There's this, this very cool thing that some of the elk do, Kira. So they'll find a river and tell Dave what to do. I never even thought of this, but it's genius. You could do it to me, actually, Dave, but anyway. <laughs>
2: yeah, elk have a lot of different strategies to try to prevent being eaten by wolves. They, the two species have co-evolved for such a long time that they do what they do, and they are both as big and strong as they are because of each other. When the wolves test the elk and start running towards them, if there's a river nearby, the elk will run to the river and they will get to a perfect depth of water if they can find it, where they can stand in the current and it's not pushing them away, their feet are on the ground, but they're deep enough where if a wolf gets out close to them, the wolf now has to swim. And swim. the wolves are very risk-averse. They don't want to do that unless they're really hungry. Um, I did yeah. see one wolf that probably hadn't eaten for a few weeks that was actually swimming to try and get to an elk. But at that point, it's very dangerous for the wolf because the elk can stomp on it, it can push it underwater, uh, being kicked by something as big as an elk. A cow elk is probably about 500 pounds. A bull elk, maybe seven or 800 pounds. And they can push the wolf underwater and it could die or drown and die that way and so they uh you know a lot of times if an elk runs to that perfect depth of water and it's in there looking back at the wolves the wolves will just stop on shore and either maybe sit and wait for a while see if the elk comes back out or they'll just go on and look for other elk
3: yeah like that is so intelligent i would imagine the experience you talked about before in the pack that the the elder wolf would be like, you know, as the young leather jacketed, earringed teenager wolf <laughs> is going, I'm going in after the elk. What's puts a paw out and go, no, you will wait. <laughs> um, you mentioned, obviously, something like an elk being able to, in that situation, being able to kill a wolf. Is the largest amount of mortality, the issues that they have, is it really themselves? Because I would imagine that's a pretty specific situation that I know elk are huge, but that, that an elk could have an advantage over a, a pack of wolves. So is it wolf on wolf is the kind of biggest killer of wolves?
2: Yeah, so their number one cause of mortality is other wolves. And that's not within the pack, but just those pack fights. And that's sure. half of the ones that we call her. So 50%. And then the second leading cause of death is during a hunt for a large ungulate. So that would be an elk. A bison, a moose, every once in a while a deer, and that's fifteen percent of the mortality.
3: And so, so, so would it be, would it be that there's just a kick or there's a, a trampling or
4: something like that?
2: Exactly. Yeah, kicked, okay. um, trampled. Every once in a while, gored by an antler, a bull or an antler. Yeah, yeah.
4: When you call her a wolf, what are the rest of the wolf pack doing?
2: So when we call her, we bring in a helicopter. To uh, pick out which ones that we want, and we'll either dart them or net the one that we want. And the rest of the wolves are not very far away, um, but they've run away from the helicopter, so they're kind of split up a little bit. While we're putting the radio collar on the one that is drugged and taking samples and things, the rest of them, we can sometimes hear howling because they're trying to join back up and communicate with each other. Usually, after about 20 minutes or so, we don't hear the howling anymore. And then the one that we had drugged will take as much as one to four hours or so to recover completely from that drug. And they will go back and join up with the pack. Usually that evening, we say in about 12 hours or so by the next morning, we always find them back
3: with their pack. And there's no resentment. There's no like, you were, you were talking to the feds. <laughs> <laughs> They're
4: not collared in that way.
3: Well, when Neil said collared, I was just I was reading. What what are they doing when they when you collar the wolves? We're well, waiting outside the precinct. Little Johnny's going to get out in a minute. They got nothing on him.
4: Yeah. Well, the only reason you will let go so soon means you dropped a dime. Come on.
2: <laughs> I always kind of thought that the radio collaring process, when the wolves heads back to their pack, was kind of like an alien abduction. They're like, that was weird. I don't really remember what happened, but now I have this thing on me. Uh, the collar doesn't seem to bother them at all. I've never actually seen them pawing at it or scratching, but we do have one pack that regularly chews off collars. They no. They can't reach it themselves, but they let their pack mates chew on. Chew it off. And just a mess because we keep trying to put out radio collars on them and they keep chewing them off. It's like an... Multi generational habit that they have. This has been going on for well over a decade.
4: My dog has uh, a cone on at the moment, so and she's had it on for about six months, and she doesn't have the intelligence to let somebody else chew off the cone. So she's walking around like a mixture between a lurcher and one of the women in uh, what's that TV show, uh, The Handmaid's Tale? That's what the dog looks like. Um, and um, so we, we've been kind of emphasizing the collaborative and the familial nature of, of a wolf pack, right? So then uh, if they're all at one family, uh, how was another wolf pack created then? Presumably the yearlings are slightly older, just kind of branch off and go their own way.
2: Yeah, at about a year and a half old, some wolves will stay with their pack for their whole life, especially if they're a female, because they might be able to inherit that territory. Males are much more likely to leave and try and start their own pack. What we see in Yellowstone is actually groups of siblings that will disperse together. So we'll have a group of maybe year-and-a-half-old males that were all born in the same litter. There's three of them, and they will leave going into the winter, so before the breeding season, and they'll go off in search of unrelated females. If they can find them and there's a territory that they can kind of establish on their own, Um, They may stay together and have pups the next year. And all of a sudden it's a new pack that we then find a name for based on wherever they started to form. All of the the packs are named after some landscape feature within their territory. But in Yellowstone, we do have large packs. There's quite a lot of overlap between pack territories. And so it's really hard for just one male wolf and one female wolf to find each other and elbow out a territory, just the two of them, because there's a, a lot of packs, That are really large. We have a couple right now that are bigger than 20. And so that group dispersal is a really great strategy for leaving and establishing a territory because all of a sudden we've had before six males from one pack meet up with five females from another pack. And all of a sudden, it's a group of 11 adults together. They can kind of throw their weight around and get a territory by force instead of just uh, trying to find it their little spot.
4: And in, in that scenario, then, um, it, it, say that the, the three brothers, the, the BG pack, as I like to call it, um, <laughs> d- it, is is there a dominant wolf there then? And is it just down to the personality of the sibling? Is that how it works?
2: That's a great question. And so back to the alpha wolf terminology, yeah. you know, normally a pack is the mother and the father and most of their offspring from a couple different years. But I mentioned that there are sometimes aunts and uncles. So those three males... They've probably worked out their dominance hierarchy since they were little pups. And a lot of that comes down to personality. You know, you put any group of people together and give them a task, someone is going to take on that leadership role to try and bring the group together to accomplish this thing. And wolves have to do a lot to cooperate with each other and accomplish all kinds of things. Number one being food, raising pups, of course, protecting themselves from other packs, just finding places to travel, avoiding humans. And so they have to do a lot of things as a group. And someone is going to eventually take on that leadership role. It's very subtle, the interactions between each other. And so we have to watch really closely sometimes to try and figure out of these three brothers, which one truly is the leader. And it's often you know the one that has his tail the highest while they're all greeting, maybe they're howling together. There's generally not a lot of tension, except maybe during the breeding season, he'll jump on Mm. a subordinate one. That one will go to the ground. Maybe its tail is lower, but it can be really subtle and difficult to figure out. I'm trying to figure this out with the Molly's pack right now, because there are a couple of males that kind of all have their tails up and act friendly with each other. And so I'm trying to figure out which one truly is the
3: leader. And is it possible then that, for example, when you describe say yearlings or or maybe the three males who go off and, and Is it possible then that the territory battles that that go on, that you could end up in a battle with your dad? Yes. Does genetics then just go out the window? Because ultimately, you are now bound to your pack rather than the pack you were born into.
2: That is something that we wanted to study and actually take all of the fights that we see and, you know... It's a wild system in Yellowstone, and so we can't control for everything like like it's an experiment, but control for as many things as we possibly can, one of those things being the relatedness between two packs that are fighting. Just my kind of impression right now, without running the statistics on it, is that the tolerance between two packs that are highly related to each other does last for a while. It might last for six months to maybe as much as a year, After that, it seems like they treat each other just kind of like any other neighboring competitor pack. But I think there is a time period of tolerance. And in fact, we'll have some wolves that will bounce back and forth. Maybe they're with their brothers here who'd left and then they'll go back home for a few months and then back with the brothers and then back home. And that can go on for some individuals for a year
4: or more. Okay. Oh, the Italy in the Second World War, basically. <laughs> just this really Italian-looking wolf. And he's just, uh, what side do you want? Uh, who, who, who says sides are important? Yeah,
2: um, yeah whoever's going to win the next fight.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I love how, um, how full circle this has come. You won't know this, in, but in terms of our series of this podcast, this has come full circle, uh, Kira, because in one of the early episodes we covered why people would set up a new business and bizarrely, Dave, you're not going to believe this, but it is related to why a wolf might leave a wolf pack and set up their own wolf pack.
3: Like the episode that we did.
4: Can you remember what it
3: was? Uh, Toxoplasmosis.
4: Yes, this is what Kira has no, been studying. No, it's not. It is. Yeah, go on, Kira. Explain <laughs> what you've been studying with Connor Mayer, who's the other author on the on the on the study.
2: Yeah, Connor and I uh, worked on this study with a couple of other of our co-authors from the Wolf Project. We knew that Toxoplasma gondii was found in Yellowstone, and there are quite a lot of mountain lions in the northern part of Yellowstone, and so we figured maybe some of the wolves had it. We see the wolves so much that we figured maybe we'll be able to try and find some patterns in their behavior for ones that are infected versus ones that were not infected. And uh, sure enough, it showed that the wolves packs that live in that place with the area of the park that has a lot of mountain lions, they were more likely to be infected. Some of those packs have at least 40% and maybe more of the pack members that are infected. And for wolves that are infected, they are much more likely to disperse than uninfected wolves. They're also more likely to become pack leaders than uninfected wolves. And, uh, you know, it does kind of fit in with the other laboratory studies on toxo and also the one other study that was done on wild animal behavior on hyenas, actually showing that they were more likely, they were approaching lions closer. The hyenas were more likely to die from lions if they were infected with toxo. We weren't able to kind of see any of the interactions between wolves and cougars because cougars are so secretive in Yellowstone, but fitting it back to that behavioral change where the infected ones were more likely to basically take risks. Things like leave your pack, things like being the pack leader. Um, I don't think it's that different really, is a wolf is becoming a pack leader, and to a human becoming, you know, an entrepreneur or business. An entrepreneur, or something.
3: yeah. So I mean, maybe maybe Neil, can you give us a one sentence or to anyone who obviously hasn't heard the the so episode we did, like what goes on.
4: Uh, basically, if you are infected with this parasite, you are more likely to take risks, and you are more likely to set up your own business, and that. And in rats, it meant that the rats were not scared of cats anymore, mm. cat urine specifically. So it seems to be, the wolf of Wall Street could actually be a wolf, essentially, Dave. <laughs> if you, if you. <laughs> If you turn on The Apprentice and there's a wolf sitting there or Dragon's Den and it's four wolves, it seems to affect the, the fear part of mammals' brains. I mean, that, that's kind of very generally putting it, but it's, it's funny that it has a similar effect on us that's, as it yeah. does on our lupine friends in the middle of Yellowstone. Can I just say, Kira? Dave has just gone out on his own. He presents the biggest commercial radio show in the country, and he's taken a huge risk of going out and presenting this show on his own. <laughs> Would you, in your professional opinion, assume? Because I think I think I do. He that he is riddled uh, in parasites. <laughs> riddled. You know. He's got tapeworm. He's got toxoplasmosis. He's got rickets. Uh, that's a different thing. He's he he's got he's got liver fluke. Um, and <laughs> can we assume that?
2: Yeah, I mean, what I've heard is that about 30 to 40 percent of the global population of humans has toxin. Yeah. Most people have no yeah. idea. And, you know, judging by those numbers, that would mean that one of the three of us probably has.
3: Yeah. yeah well okay hang on i'm not the one stalking wolves in long grass so whatever risks i'm taking my radio career yeah. kira yeah. is out risking me left right and center
4: well this is true you've kind of outed yourself there kira i'm afraid
3: <laughs> yeah um kira the, the phrase lone wolf is something that is in the vernacular and there must be a reason behind it do wolves need to live in packs or are lone wolves actually a thing
2: lone wolves are a thing there are two of them that we're tracking right now in yellowstone but it is usually only a temporary uh time in their life and they're generally looking to find either an unrelated mate to start a pack themselves or looking to join a pack that's already established that's very rare for females to do but males occasionally will join a pack as a subordinate um if the lead male allows it even if he's not related to him and so That lone wolf time period is tricky. Some wolves will be alone for a couple days and they're very lucky or socially adept. And all of a sudden they find a mate and that time period was very short in their life. And then other wolves, we've had um, the longest one that I can think of. She was alone for two and a half years before she found a mate. And certainly she met other wolves during that time, ran across the scent of other packs, other unrelated males that she could have uh, formed a new group with, um, joined back up with but her didn't. home pack possibly, but just like humans, I think that there are some that are more comfortable being alone than others, and ones that are more picky about who they want to be with full time.
4: And while that lone wolf was a lone wolf, do you do you have any numbers in terms of did the listeners to the radio show go up or did they <laughs> did they stay the same as when he was as part of a pack? That's it. we're getting into a different thing there. Um, uh, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Kira, I have to say.
3: It, it has been mind-blowing. And can I just say one thing? This is really weird. This has got nothing to do with this. this is such a weird coincidence. And I swear to God this has happened, right? Yeah. Last night, I have twin daughters. I have four kids, but I have twin daughters, Kira. And they're young enough that there was a there was a nightmare, and one of them came up to, to our bedroom, which is where I am now recording this, because obviously every podcaster knows you only record things in your bedroom. So yes. my daughter came up and... Wanted to sleep in the, between myself and my wife. We were like, oh, really? Like, can you not just go down and you're fine or whatever? And then eventually it was like decided my wife would go down into her bed and she would come up. Her, but she had to get teddies, right? So Neil will recognize this. Uh, this is an 80s TV character that my wife used to own. It's <laughs> oh, yes. called Roland, Roland Rat. Rat yeah. and Roland Rat used to, she's literally had this since she was a child. So it's 40 odd years old. And my daughter brought that up. But I'm not joking. The other thing she brought up, but I, which I just found during our conversation, because it was sitting on the pillow beside me, <laughs> is a wolf toy. Oh, like, I, I, I swear to God, I did not plan this.
4: I was hoping you were going to take out Toxoplasmosis. <laughs> yeah, she, does,
3: she doesn't have that. I'm afraid. Yeah, she
4: has a parasite. It's a toy. She's a weirdo. I was
2: hoping you were going to say she had a nightmare about wolves. <laughs>
3: No, yeah. no, she, she definitely listening. she loves her wolves. She loves her wolves. Don't worry. But it was just kind of strange. Before I let you go, I had to wow. tell you that that there's a wolf sitting here looking at you.
4: You can follow um all, all the research of uh, from Yellowstone. It's there's there's loads of stuff online about it. There's you can see pictures of on YouTube of the trail cameras, and you see these playful wolves in their natural habitat. Well worth uh, uh, checking out. Uh, thank you so much to Kira Cassidy, who is an associate research scientist with a National Park Service research program, and for in, in which national park Yellowstone I mean I know there's other ones but no one cares uh, no that's the big it's one it's all about Yellowstone to be honest with you thanks Kira.
2: thanks so much
4: welcome back to you, part three of why would you tell me that Dave what did you think of Kira Cassidy and her just wide knowledge of wolves
3: Mind blowing! I just love when someone is such an expert on either one creature or one branch of something or one piece of study or one people or whatever it is. It's just so fascinating to pick their brains. And Kira was amazing. And wolves are amazing.
4: Yeah, I mean, any any one of three or four amazing facts in that would kind of you could build an episode around it. The idea that grandmothers are where the repository. They're the repository totally. of the knowledge is amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, the fact that they all raise the family together when the, the bonding hormone uh, is raised amongst everybody, even though they're not your pups necessarily. Yeah, yeah. You know, and what we got her on for, that the the flawed research about alpha wolves alpha is based wolves. on wolves in yeah. captivity.
3: Love it. Absolutely loves it, Neil.
4: If that's not enough, I yeah. got a message from her after we chatted. And uh, she said, I was just saying that Thomas Francis Maher, young Ireland rebellion leader, and later the first... Territorial governor Of Montana Where I live Is my great 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 Uncle (laughs) Yes I mean She gives good content Cassidy doesn't she She's not called Kira Cassidy For nothing in fairness
3: That's as Irish as they come Neil what an episode Absolutely brilliant
4: What have you got For me
3: next week Oh next week I'm going to introduce you To a man Who you may not have heard of Called Robert Smalls Ever heard of Bobby No Robert Smalls Might just have had The most interesting life Of any human (laughs) Ever. That is okay. A big claim. And here's a big claim. I'm not going to go into any more detail than that for the moment. I just want you to tune in next week because this guy's life story will blow all of our tiny minds.
4: Okay. I'm here for that.
3: Right. We'll see you next week. So. Thanks, Dave.